Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. We're nearing the end of our first series as Ed's book stops at the end of 1963. He's working on the sequel now and it'll be out in 2019. For now, we've got so much to talk about regarding 1963 that we're splitting it into two episodes. This week, we'll be covering how Barry Gordy perfected his Motown assembly line, Phil Spector and the Wrecking Crew, Roy Orbison's operatic dramas, Patsy Cline's final year, and how James Brown finally seized control of his career and became the godfather of soul. Be sure and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. But now it's time to plug in those earbuds and hear what Ed has to say. History of Rock and Roll 1920 to 1963. This is the ultimate chapter of the first part of the book. Ed, why did you stop it here in 1963? Uh, actually, I was looking for a way to cut this thing in half. I, I had originally pitched the book as as the whole thing, and um, nobody wanted that much. But there was one guy who was open to the possibility of doing it in two parts, and um, my agent, who is also a musician, um, just came on the idea, why don't you do it in 1963? And so I had to write a, a sample chapter, and um, I gave them 1963 as the sample chapter, and I realized, hey, this is a good place to stop. Uh, you know, with the, the Beatles um, coming to Capitol Records in... December. December is the end of the year. There we go. Good call, David. Perfect. And yeah, throughout this chapter, you've got the Beatles and the Stones beavering away in England, and it's sort of like a rumbling under the surface, because your your book is focused primarily on American musical history. You have a few chapters... Up till now. On, on, you have one, I think, one or two chapters about England interspersed with the other chapters. Well, that's to show how rock and roll evolved organically. In England, that that it, it was um, not like it was in Germany, where it was imported, already formed, you know, and um, then the Germans said, "Oh, we can try this," and boy, tried did they ever. <laughs> and they do come up with krautrock in the seventies, but it's not ever quite going to take over the rock and roll world like the British did, right? With the Beatles and the Stones and just an enormous explosion. But you actually start this chapter with the Motown sound which is another harbinger of the 60s, 
perfected, you argue, with Holland Dozier Holland and Martha and then Vandela's Come and Get These Memories. Right. That was a song that Holland Dozier and, Do- Holland, Dozier and Holland had, had written um, for Loretta Lynn. Which is crazy. People. I don't know. I can hear her doing that song. It requires a vastly different arrangement, but I, I can hear her singing it. And, uh, well, anyway, they did that because they they were still struggling songwriters and they weren't on staff yet. And um, it was just something they had lying around and they thought, oh, you know, these girls have been pestering us. Let's, let's uh, see if we can make it work for them. And what they did was they proved to Barry that his sort of... Barry Gordy. Ta- yeah, Barry Gordy. His time on the Ford assembly line had taught him the uh, basics of factory production. And here you had guys who wrote the song, taught it to the artist, produced it for the artist, and delivered it. You know, it, it was just like from, from typewriter to mixing desk, it was one fluid factory operation. And one piece of that you're leaving out is the Funk Brothers, the Motown House Band, which was this incredible set of Detroit jazz musicians, James Jamerson on bass, Benny Benjamin on drums, and, and a whole crew of killers that they stayed in the studio and played with every producer that came through, whether it was Smokey Robinson, Holland Dozier Holland, uh, any of the amazing right. spectrum of talents that Barry Gordy assembled around Motown. And in that year, 1963, they started with a big hit for Marvin Gaye, Hitchhike, came out in late 1962. Was Marvin the the torch carrier for Motown? That well, time? he was somebody that that very understood where he was coming from. He liked show tunes, and he also had a gospel thing going, but not so much. Very really reacted to gospel to to like deep soul. He he was he was more interested in selling records to everybody because everybody is a larger number than just black people is. And so, yeah, I mean, and Marvin had plenty of experience. He'd sung backup at Chess Records. He's on a couple of Chuck Berry records back in the USA Hmm. as a background singer. That's awesome. That was recorded in Chicago, I'm guessing? Yeah. Huh. Very cool. And so... The Motown is perfecting this assembly line thing, but they were not the only ones. That had become basically the American method of recording rock and roll. You talk about Backrack David and their uh, Don't Make Me Over with Dionne Warwick. They're sort of the Brill Building exemplars that you talk about. Right, because by then the Brill Building had developed its own uh, sound and, and its own crew of New York studio musicians. Yeah, and King Curtis and, and, and Mickey Baker uh, at all. and But Backrack David are really weird because they're they're not rock and roll, technically. I no. mean, their songs are sui generis. I mean, Backrack's incredibly complicated the, harmonically. Right. It, 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 comes out of, it comes out of jazz and classical music as much as anything. And uh, Backrack, uh, I'm sure, thought of himself as a jazz musician who had to earn a living by toiling in the fields of pop. Yeah, and but with Dionne Warwick, she brings a sort of pop soul credibility to it, and it fits in seamlessly with the hits of 1963. It doesn't mm-hmm. sound like some sort of egg-headed outlier. It, it sounds like just really good pop music. Yeah, and, and she also came from a gospel tradition, but was suppressing it, the same as Marvin Gaye was. 
Yeah, and was talented enough to, to sing with the weird time signatures that Backrack couldn't resist throwing in. And another guy who had an incredible year in 1963, the eccentric Phil Spector, who was flying back and forth between New York and Los Angeles. You talk about uh, some of the stuff he did with Bobby Sox uh, and also the Crystals version of He's a Rebel, written by Gene Pitney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Spector was an empire builder, and he had his own factory system. Uh, there, there at Gold Star Recording in Los Angeles, he had the so-called wrecking crew, who I find later um, they never called themselves that. But uh, he had he had all of the top studio musicians on call, and they wanted to work for him. You know, if they if they woke up in the morning and and there was a call from Phil Spector to come into the studio today, hey, they would do that right away. And, uh, you know, it was it was all kinds of weird people, you know, Leon Russell and and uh, April Tempo and Nino, Nino what, and Nino's no wait, April Stevens, and Nino Tempo. Right. Yep. Who were also songwriters, but they were performers. A- and Carol Kay, uh, a, a female jazz guitarist on electric bass, which was still a fairly rare instrument outside of surf music. Um all, all of these people, and you know, he, he had three great drummers who played sometimes all in the same session together. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a remarkable crew, and he knew how to work them. Yeah, he really did. It's amazing when you hear Carol Kay talking about it in the Wrecking Crew documentary. He would pack the studio with all these musicians and make them play it over and over and over again, maybe have four or five guitar players playing the same parts. I mean, getting Barney Kessel in to strum chords, you know, right. this great jazz guitarist in to strum chords. But she said you just went with it, and it became like the, these waves of sound that just flowed over you. And, and he would make the musicians play until they were exhausted and broken, so they would do exactly what he wanted. Right. Yeah, he he was he was very good at that. He was just a kid. I mean, I don't know how old he was. He's twenty three. Twenty three. Yeah, I was thinking it was something like that, and um, you know, and they would do it because they knew that he knew what he was doing and that he got results on the charts. Yeah, had an incredible string of hit records with his own of Phil Less records. just uh, just killing it in 1963. Another group you talk about uh, just a little bit, and I, I would argue you kind of give them short shrift. You talk about them in an earlier chapter, though. The Four Seasons are huge with Walk Like a Man. Right. Yeah, the Four Seasons, were they, they came out of nowhere. The, 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 it was a, a vocal group, but not anything like any of the black ones. Um, and, and the music they were performing, you know, also, it was some kind of new pop. And... Uh, you know, so yeah, they they had they had started well. Bob Crew, who um, was the producer, he had struggled for years to uh, have his own career. I I started seeing Bob Crew records coming out in in the mid fifties, and uh, I guess he was just no good as, as a vocalist and as a performer, or he he chose bad material, although he wrote a lot of the Four Seasons Yeah, co-wrote it with Bob Gaudio, the keyboard player. Yeah. And I think, you know, the Four Seasons are really weird. I mean, they're they're in New Jersey rather than New York City or the West Coast, although they recorded in the city. But, you know, Frankie Valli is the same age as Elvis, 
Bob Gaudio is is younger, the same age as Phil Spector, and and Crew is also older. But they made a very contemporary sound in the early '60s, and and although they didn't sound like a black group, they had R&B credibility and charted consistently on the R&B charts throughout the '60s. Part of that was because they were the VJ Records, which had a lot of clout uh, as an R&B and blues label. Yeah, and and so one thing that sort of mystified me because the Four Seasons is a group that you know I grew up hearing on the radio; these hits have survived. But unlike the Beach Boys, whom they're very analogous to in a lot of ways. Well, because they have the, the falsetto stuff down. Yeah, and they produced their own tracks and wrote their own stuff. But the Beach Boys have this whole cult of rock critics that, you know, analyze Brian Wilson's every nervous breakdown. And, and the Four Seasons have almost no critical attention. But they have the Jersey Boys musical and movie. Right, they get a, a, a hit musical out of it. Who's going to, you know, nobody's going to do a, a Brian Wilson uh, jukebox musical featuring the the lead the lead actor having nervous breakdowns and and psychotic episodes. Yeah, the Four Seasons though have their mafia connections, which are deep. Yeah, and, well, they're Italian and from New Jersey. Hello. Yeah, it's it's hard to cut that. Out. And then another guy that was cooking that year was Rory Orbison, who was uh, doing these sort of operatic things like In Dreams. I mean, these mammoth tunes. Very eccentric. I mean, he comes out of the sun uh, uh, rockabilly thing early on, but by this point, he's evolved into his own thing. And well, it's Nashville ha- had all of these pretensions for taking over the world of pop, and he was the the bright young man who would do that. Um, I'm not sure, I, and I probably should look this up, who his arranger was, because th- that is, I mean, he could sing over the specter wall of sound if he had to. And so this was just a, a, a Nashville approach to that. And, you know, once again, a town where there's no shortage of great musicians and uh, no shortage of, of money to make these records because he was working for uh, Acuff Rose, which was the oldest uh, music publishing uh, house in, in Nashville and, and their, um, their own label monument, which, um, you know, was just a titan. It was it was actually a label that went for pop music. That was what it was created for. Yeah, because he was not marketed or seen as a country performer. He no. was a pop rock performer, but it's all, like you said, it's all a Nashville thing. Right. Like right. Rose uh, and then the Nashville Studios. And another big pop country uh, queen was Patsy Cline, who died early that year, produced by Owen Bradley. And... You know, if you if you make a playlist out of the songs that you list in this chapter, Patsy Cline holds her own. Oh yeah, just an incredibly powerful singer. Yeah, she she was you know, she she came out of nowhere. Well, not nowhere. She has a whole string of really terrible country records before she managed to hook up with Decca and and get going on on this new direction. And there she was picking songs like "Crazy" by Willie Nelson, which. I mean, that, that's a jazz tune. It's got very weird chords. A lot of Willie's stuff has weird chords. And um, <clears throat> and uh, she, she was, you know, th- this was the material she wanted to do. I mean, starting with Walking After Midnight, which is sort of country, she, she then goes into a straight pop thing. And yeah, she, uh, she did die right at the height of her, her career or what, God knows what would have happened had she lived. It didn't happen for Brenda Lee no. so much, but she was a kid. She was a teenager. 
Yeah, she had the same producer, Owen Bradley, and right. a really powerful vocalist. But I've and access to the same, you know, yeah. songwriters, musicians, etc. Yeah, but she just can't compete with the emotional power Patsy Cline brings. And I, I've listened to a lot of Brenda Lee in the last couple of years since I discovered her, you know, and, and been fascinated by this split. Like, what is it about Patsy Cline that makes her music have more staying power than than a Brenda Lee who had a well, great living, voice? Living, she she had. You know, she'd been married and, and, and she'd knocked around and, and she'd tried hard to make a career and record all these terrible records as an attempt to do that. She was clawing her way up the ladder. You do, you can't possibly have that kind of uh, experience by the time you're 13. That's true. That's true. But another protege of, of Patsy Klein was Loretta Lynn, who was writing these incredibly clever and, and subversive songs like the other woman i mean right yeah loretta lynn but she was pure country and i think everybody wanted her to stay that way because that was that was the nature of her voice she was never going to go pop with that voice of hers and the accent and the whole you know act um and, and she preferred that kind of stuff uh, as as she had uh, she'd grown up you know what in kentucky i believe and, yep, and um, moved to oregon and uh uh, the Oregon country scene must have been really strange because Willie Nelson was up there for quite some time. Yeah, the Pacific Northwest sort of pops back in and out of, of American musical history at odd intervals. Uh, you know, Ray Charles. Ray Charles in was, was in a country a country band up there, right? Yeah, and then and we'll we'll talk about Ray in 1963 in a minute. But of course, the the monster coming out of the Pacific Northwest in 1963 was the Kingsman with Louie Louie, which I'm jumping ahead of my notes, but while we're talking about it. I mean, that song is such a monster. Badly recorded. They botched the solo, you know, take too many bars, but it just kills. Yeah. Well, it, it was, it was unconstrained anarchy, basically, which was, had an appeal to a lot of people. I'm not sure that their version of Louie Louie did that well on the charts, but it was just one of those records that everybody had for a long time. I mean, I went to, went into college at the end of 1965 and when people's record collections were hauled out there was always that album with the three lions on it which was the Kingsman sing Louie Louie and everybody tried to decipher the words that was part of the bad recording the words are, are just really simple I mean and, and they're perfectly innocent uh, despite J. Edgar Hoover and everybody else yeah, the FBI going was, after the record. The FBI was literally investigating that. But let's get back to country because right. there's some more interesting things going on in, in Nashville. And you talked about Willie Nelson. He's uh, writing songs like Half a Man. And Willie later becomes a huge hit singer. But at this point in the 60s, the book on him was his songwriter basically can't sing. Yeah, yeah. He was he was there because he was a valuable property. He could write things like... Uh, like crazy and and like family bible which is a straight ahead ultra sentimental uh country song so th he's a versatile songwriter and of course tree music uh who was his publisher and and the people who gave him his office to write in there um they thought he was a great investment because he he could go in any direction and and they never knew what direction that was. And it and it panned out for him. I mean, he, he put together a sweet book of copyrights in the 60s that had to have been making the money. And when he finally broke through as, as a platinum-selling uh, pop artist, it was it was with standards because he knew how to play that stuff. He had that, that way of harmonic thinking 
where he could he could jump into Jerome Kern and, and, and people like that, you know, just like a jazz musician. Yeah, and I, I thought it was interesting that you started talking about country so early in the chapter, but the way that you bring up Holland Dozer Holland in Detroit, you know, these pop soul songwriters are looking to break into the country market. They're listening to country. They're thinking about Loretta Lynn. It shows how intertwined these things are and how artificial the genre distinctions were to music, to musicians who are just listening. Right, exactly. And there there were no, I mean, there were formulas, certainly. Uh, you know, blues and, and hard country had a limited number of, of chord progressions that they used and stuff like that, but it wasn't necessarily so for everybody. And, you know, there was something interesting just about everywhere. Yeah, and, and you know, country also had uh, some killer... It wasn't just pop country coming out of Nashville. You also had some pretty killer tracks like Six Days on the Road by Dave Dudley and right. Detroit City by Bobby Bear. But the real killers in country were coming out of Bakersfield that year. And you talk about Buck Owens uh, with the number one hit, Act Naturally. And Merle Haggard uh, was still on an independent label at the beginning of the right. year. Right. That, that was – well, what had happened was around 1957, um, the uh, Capitol Records – which was in in Los Angeles. One of the founders of Capitol Records was a, was a country singer and songwriter, and they they knew that there was something happening out there in the oil fields and the cotton fields, and uh, there was a um, a club. The most notable there were several clubs, but the most notable was called the Blackboard, and um, they had a killer house band, and. Anybody who thought he was a songwriter could sit in. It was really informal. And out of that came people like the Farmer Boys, which was a, a brother duo from um, north of Bakersfield. I forget where they were from, uh, but it was a farming it was a farming community, and they were actually farmers. Their names weren't Farmer. Um, and that was the first group that uh, Capital signed out of Bakersfield, and they did pretty well. And Buck Owens was right there going, hey, hey, me, me, and, and writing hard country tunes. But the whole thing was the band in the blackboard was really electric. Everybody was using solid body electric guitars, basses, and they were loud, <laughs> yeah, and Don was, Rich, uh, Buck Owens, right hand man and guitar player, was oh, just a killer lead guitar player. Right, and uh, you know, so so this scene was was happening out there, and Capitol was taking full advantage. You know, it wasn't just Buck; it was Bonnie Owens and uh, his wife, and uh, or she was his wife at that point, and uh, all these other people, and and that's why they they came to uh, to tally, uh, and uh, tried to steal Merle Haggard away, but. Merle Haggard, to his credit, said, no, these people have believed in me for so many years that uh, I, I feel I should stick with them. But he does make the jump to Capitol. Well, I think Capitol bought the record label. That's well, two ways, <laughs> multiple ways to skin a cat. And, and, and gave, um, gave jobs to the guys at Tally, who they realized had, had ears that nobody in the Capitol Tower had. And, and again, talking about, you know, thinking about Patsy Cline and Brenda Lee, Buck Owens and Merle Haggard is almost comparable because Buck had this incredible commercial success in the 60s, put together a great body of work, but he didn't succeed in creating this overarching myth about himself like Merle Haggard did. And, and I, I really would argue that Buck, part of it was he was handicapped by hee-haw. I mean, right. he was on hee-haw, and so people <laughs> my age saw him as a clown on TV and not realizing that he was this serious, hardcore 
country rocker, but Merle Haggard had these songs like Mama Tried that created this myth around him. Well, it wasn't all a myth. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some of it was, I mean, he really did uh, live in a boxcar. It was some boxcar that had been shunted off and they moved it onto the land, but they, they built a house in there because it was free. <laughs> so yeah, I mean he's 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 living the myth and and playing it. And then another guy doing country in a way is Ray Charles, whose 62 album Modern Sounds and Country Western Music, his first album with the ABC record label after leaving Atlantic, was a massive 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 hit. Because he's he saw through pardon the inadvertent <laughs> joke there, but he, he he saw through country music you know, from within, he knew how to play it and so forth. He he played a lot of the songs that he recorded, and, and he probably, while he was banging them out in the country bars, he was he was probably thinking, you know, I could slow this down, I could bluesify it a little bit, but the lyrics were right there. You know, born to lose songs like that, they were really compatible with the uh, with his approach to songwriting in general. You'll notice he never recorded a Willie Nelson song ah, because true. that was too jazzy. He, he, he could have, but he was much more interested in the one, four, five country songs, you know, Hank, Hank Williams, Williams. Yeah. Don Gibson. Yeah. Yeah. But, but he also added a lot of strings and sweeteners. So it's, it's by far the most pop recording of his career. Which was his intention anyway, because he knew that unless he could start selling significantly more records than he had been, he was going to be on the Chitlin circuit for the rest of his life. And he did not want that to happen. Yeah. And, and this was an enormous breakthrough. To me, it's sort of analogous to David Bowie's Let's Dance album in the 80s. I mean, you got a guy who's put together a great body of work over a decade or so, and he's looked at the market and he knows his talent and he makes something that's completely credible artistically but absolutely calculated to sell and succeed. Right, which was, I think, what ABC saw when they talked to him. You know, he, he wanted to leave Atlantic. He wanted out of the rhythm and blues thing. But based on what he'd done previously, how was, how was anybody going to understand what he wanted to do? And then he probably walked into the offices at ABC and said, I'm going to record a country album. And they said, what? And then he, he may have done some demos to show his approach. And they went, right, we can do this. And they did in, in a big way. And then this is sort of a, a, a gear shift, but you talk about Leslie Gore's version of It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To, produced by Quincy Jones, which is you know young singer coming out of nowhere, uh, massive, massive hit. Right, and a producer a black jazz musician from the Pacific Northwest as the producer, Quincy Jones. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Leslie Gore was kind of, I don't know who, who she'd be analogous to on on the, the male side, but she had this insight, maybe Roy Orbison in a way. She, she had uh, an insight into the worst fears and the, the deepest dreams of teenage girls. Teenage girls bought the majority of 45 RPM records for decades. And um, she, uh, she also wrote a lot of her own material. So there she was, a perfect package. 
Yeah, and that and that song is sort of weird because you know in that period most of the women performers that are selling forty five to girls are doing it in the context of girl groups, which right. are seen as less threatening to girls and girls. You know, that was a theory that girls would be too jealous of a female singer to make right. it big. But Leslie is so clearly articulating the experience of being a teenage girl that she broke through all that. And there's you didn't talk about this in the book, but there's some stories about it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. Like one of them is that supposedly Phil Spector bumped into Quincy Jones one night and was bragging about he had just cut that track with the crystals. And Quincy said, shit, I better get in the studio and cut that immediately and beat it out. And Phil erased the tapes when he heard Leslie Gore's version. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's I'd what I've never heard that somewhere. story. I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it happened. Um, certainly, uh, Spectre bragging <laughs> is very credible. <laughs> yeah, and, and to me, it's like you're seeing the modern era being born in 1963, but it's very much still in practice, the older era where songs are fungible and different artists can take cracks exactly. at, at the same song. Right. You, you get cover versions still. And there's, there's no idea necessarily that anybody owns a performance. Um, although that idea has been gathering steam since Maybelline and the five or six cover versions that just died instantly. Yeah, and it's much like the death of sheet music because, you know, jazz records and rock and roll records were not the kind of thing you could recreate at home with your piano and Aunt Gladys singing along. Right. But one other singer who took a try at a stab at It's My Party was the Brit Helen Shapiro, who came to Nashville to make this weird record, Helen in Nashville, that was sort of a precursor of Dusty in Springfield, except it never did anything in the U.S. But she's touring England with this band of, of lads opening for her. Mm-hmm. And and so it's a, it's another connection to this earthquake that's coming from England. And what do you think Helen Shapiro never made it in, with the British invasion? Well, the British invasion was all about groups of boys. Well, Dusty Springfield was huge. I mean, she was yeah, but she was, she was a, too much of a, a traditional pop artist. Um, the British invasion was a new sound entirely and she wasn't i mean she was you know not that different from leslie gore in a lot of ways yeah and so i i I feel for these people like helen shapiro who was 16 in 1963 and about to become obsolete right well she followed the best advice of the most professional people in britain and that's what it gets you (laughs) yeah and so you talk a lot about uh, the, the beatles and also their their label mate in America, Frank Ifield, who's this weird sort of uh, Australian singer, actually, who was big in Britain, uh, doing a version of Wayward Wind that was big in 1963, but he had done I Remember You. He's sort of like a Slim Whitman imitator. Right. Well, Slim Whitman was much bigger in uh, in Britain than he was in the United States, one of several uh, um, country singers who uh, had that kind of experience. Yeah, and, and so you talk about how the Beatles, you know, ended up on VJ with Frank Ifield and they put out, you know, things like a dual album of half Frank Ifield and half Beatles tracks. But Please Please Me comes out on VJ Records because Capitol turned it down. Right. Well, I mean, let's face it. What was, what, what did you buy from Britain? You know, does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? Kind of, you know, I don't know, hoked up music hall kind of stuff. Yeah, you also had Telstar, though, from Joe Meek and this weird well, surf and surf instrumental in a vague way. Yeah, sure. But that was, you know, that was a novelty. You know, that was like Volare 
you know, all in Italian. But it was a number one hit in 1958. Yeah. So do you think, and not to get too much into alternative history, but if Capital had put out Please Please Me, I mean, obviously it wouldn't have exploded like I Want to Hold Your Hand did in December, but what would history have been like if the Beatles had had a slow rise in the States? I don't know. I, I don't know that VJ uh, had the wherewithal to promote it. I'm not sure Capital did. Um, I think Capital sat until they saw exactly how big this phenomenon was. In Britain, things were happening right one after the other. Beatles record, bam, Beatles record, bam, right to the top of the charts. Imitation Beatle records like, you know, Jerry and the Pacemakers, bam, those sold too. They thought, well, you know, the, these like strange looking boys playing their own instruments is a trend in Britain. Let's put our toe in the water. And it did not take off in December. It didn't take, it, it was released on December 26th, which I can't think of a worse day to release a record. Um, in fact, one of my favorite albums um, was released on that, uh, that day of the year. Um, it was an album by the band Clover, who had just come out of the studio backing up Elvis Costello. Uh, they were in, in England, and uh, they had a contract, and they wanted to record there because it was incredibly cheap. And um, I don't know why Mercury, it's a great, great album, and nobody's ever heard it. Because of that, because of when it came out, you know, it's like, you know, uh, what what are you doing on January first if you're in the record business? You're doing your taxes. You, in order to do that, you have to process all your returns and how much you paid out for them. You've got to pay those bills too, you know, to to the people who've sent your product back. You're doing accounting. You're not doing promotion. Yeah, but yet within six weeks or so, that I want to hold your hand is number one all over America. Well, somebody decided to play it on the radio, and I I don't know the full story of that yet because I haven't begun researching it. But I don't think that the Beatles coming any earlier than they did would have had much of an effect. I yeah. mean, they would have to have enough material already there so that whoever was releasing it could once again do that bang, bang, bang thing that happened in England. And that's exactly what Capital did, because they had all of the stuff, they had all the material to release. Plus VJ and Swan with Please Please Me and She Loves You. Yeah, but those, those didn't sell at all. But in 64 they did. Yeah, well, once yeah. Capital, you know, Capital is definitely, you know, the elephant in the room. VJ was real big with black people. And Swan, I mean, who knows? There was also a label called Tolly. Where, where are these? Whatever else did they do? Swan, I think, actually had some Link Ray records. And Rumble and others. But and one thing you talk about, Gary, and the pacemakers is imitation Beatles. And looking back on it, it's easy to see them, you know, after we've heard the Stones and the Animals and, and the bands and the Kinks that are coming along, it's easy to, to dismiss the second tier Merseyside bands. But if you listen to a playlist of 1963 songs, Gary and the Pacemakers have a lot of punch. Jerry. Jerry and the Pacemakers have a lot of punch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As do Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. I, you know, I saw him on the um, the Tammy show when when that movie got re-released, and it's like, whatever happened to him? He really had something going on there. Uh, there there's simply too much competition, too many, you know, too much product to try to to sort through. But um, yeah, I mean. 
there was something happening there in the north of England, mostly because all these guys who knew better, who were guiding Ellen Shapiro, they, they weren't interested in this stuff. Yeah, I mean, the Beatles had an incredibly long gestation period. I mean, John Lennon's the same age as Cliff Richard, who's big in England by 1958 and has already tried and failed to make it in the U.S. by 1963. But they have year after year of playing these clubs in Liverpool and Hamburg and becoming this incredibly honed and tight, just a perfected pop rock machine. There's nothing like playing six hours a night, seven days a week to get your chops in order or break up your band. Yeah, and the Beatles managed to survive it. But meanwhile, back in America, you know, you've got Phil Spector and others, but you also have Lieber and Stoller at kind of the peak of their powers doing things like on Broadway with the Drifters, which uh, they're using a man while as his songwriters. And, you know, you don't mention this, but Phil Spector plays guitar on that track. Yeah, well, Phil was very closely identified with them. They had given him a chance to be sort of their intern, and he seized the opportunity to uh, to make as many records as he possibly could with them because they knew what they were doing and he knew they knew what they were doing, which is very important. Yeah, they're sort of like the alpha mentors of the Brill Building scene and, you know, in addition to Spectre Manuel, just mentoring several of these songwriting teams. And one song you talk about that I'd never heard before that just blew me away and I got completely addicted to it is this weird record by the J-Nets, who to my knowledge didn't do anything else, Sally Go Round the Roses. This is the most incredible song. It is a real weird story in that that's the other Spectre, Abner Spectre, who was from Chicago, as I believe the J-Nets were. Um, they were managed by the lead singer's mother, and they came up with this dirge tempo song about depression, essentially. And I really don't know what Sally Go Round the Roses came from what what's the origin of that that image and and what does it mean um and then there is a i mean a lot of people i knew when they heard it they saw the record and said abner specter and they thought oh it's phil specter moonlighting but you know it wasn't it was it was a echo laden performance the way his records were but it was but with a very minimalist arrangement and right it's almost like Loops. You would, if if you heard the song coming out of the eighties, you would say these are loops. Right. There's very tight, repetitive patterns, and it's just way ahead of its time. And then, you know, since discovered, it was a big influence on the whole San Francisco rock scene. Grace Slick did covers of it. Right. And, right. It, it's yeah. It's one of those records you hear and you don't forget. I I was told that it was the ultimate slow dance record in lesbian bars. Hmm. And I think that the later story on the Janets, they they hooked up with a woman in New York who um, did a lot of uh, girl group stuff, who who was herself gay. I don't know. I mean, really, they they never meant anything on the oldie circuit, and I don't know where they disappeared to or anything. Yeah, but it's just a, just a great great record and fun. But that. It shows you that there was enormous depth to the soul uh, and R&B scene in that year. I mean, you talk about Irma Thomas. Barbara Lewis is another one that I had never heard before. Oh. But Hello, Stranger, just incredibly powerful stuff. Right. Yeah, the, the, they're very distinctive voices. Um, Barbara Lewis sounds like a little girl, and, and yet she has this real sophistication and, and great material. I don't know whether she chose it or not, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, she she, she continues to amaze. You get a, a, a Barbara Lewis's greatest hits record, and and you'll just be astonished. All these, I never heard that before. No, you didn't. It's weirdly enough, you didn't. Yeah. And, and Irma Thomas, she came out of a sort of gospel blues setting, but she was really lucky in finding people in New Orleans to feed her material. And of course, in New Orleans, once again, like Nashville and Los Angeles, you're just going to come up with an incredible embarrassment of riches in terms of of backing musicians and and producers. Yeah, and New Orleans, unlike those others, didn't have any major, no record labels essentially in the city. No, they had Minute. But Which not, is what what she recorded on, yeah. and, and they had a, a number of stars. But compared to L.A. or Nashville, and then yeah. the, only the one studio, Cosimo Studio, right? And so it's sort of a stealth thing. But um, you also talk about uh, Garnet Mims' "Cry Baby," which is this mammoth tune, right? And that's that's Jerry Ragavoy, who is one of the great unknown. Well, he's not unknown, but one Wrote of the time greatest. On my side. Time is on my side. Right, he's one of the great soul. Uh, songwriters and, and producers, and uh, Garnet Mims was was his his ticket to uh, credibility with the whole New York scene. Although I think Garnet was from Philadelphia, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right. I think but, you're right. But um, this enabled Rags to keep going, and and you know, think of how many of his tunes Janis Joplin covered, like Crybaby. Right. And you know he well he his greatest work came after the year we're discussing, but uh, yeah, and and Burt Burns I think was involved with Crybaby to some extent. Yeah, he he was he was one. Well, all of these hustlers around around New York at that time, you know, who were on their way up, and Burns definitely he 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 was fairly sure he didn't have very long to live. Uh, he lived a lot longer than he thought, but um, he uh, he wanted to get as much together as he possibly could before he finally did croak. Yeah, and one of his tunes that he wrote was Twist and Shout, which the Beatles put on their first album. You know, the, George Martin was a little slow to click with the Beatles, struggled with Love Me Do throughout 1962. That comes out as sort of a slow burn, makes a top 20, and George Martin clicks and gets the Beatles. And from there, it's just off to the races, please, please me. Everybody knew that was going to be a massive number one hit even before it comes out in England anyway. And then they immediately get him in the studio to, to cut the Please Please Me album, the legendary, what, 10 tracks in one day? Yeah. Culminating with the one-take killing version of Twist and Shout. Which they, they figured they needed one more track. And so Lennon just jumps in front of the microphone. That's a first take. And that's incredible. And his voice is completely destroyed. Yeah. You hear later live versions or something, and they sound a whole lot better on the vocal. Yeah, but but that was perfect for the recording. Absolutely. And, and, and the power of that. And if you listen to the original Isley Brothers version, it's a lot more Latin beat inflected. And the Beatles steal that song. Yeah. I mean, but the Isleys, they had their own trajectory coming out of gospel. You know, and, and that, that, I think they saw it as, as just one of those end, end of the uh, set things from a gospel program. Yeah, and speaking of gospel, you had this. Uh, you talk about this battle over the song "If You Need Me," where you got Wilson Pickett, who's up and coming, coming out of the Falcons uh, vocal group in Detroit, against Solomon Burke. Both of them doing dueling versions of this song, and both having hits. Yeah, but King Solomon wins. Right. Uh, well, King Solomon had a 
he had a self-assurance that Wilson did not at that point. Pickett had been making record after record after record on all these crappy little labels, and I guess he was getting fed really terrible material. But he, he was probably wondering whether quitting the Falcons had been the smartest move he'd ever made. And because um, he knew he had the instrument, he'd already had a number one hit with the Falcons, you know, and, and so he, he was probably a little bit discouraged, although I think Jerry Wexler uh, said, well, you know, it was weird that the dueling versions were on the same label. That is a very weird choice. But, um, you know, Wexler probably figured, well, if one doesn't get it, the other one will. Yeah, but the king of soul that year was James Brown, who's been knocking around since 1957 when he had his first hit. He has a hit with Prisoner of Love with a string, se- string section, still on King Records, still frustrated, though, and forces Sid Nathan to put out this Live at the Apollo album. Sid Nathan must have really had a serious personality clash with James Brown. I don't, By the way, I don't think of James Brown as being a soul singer. He, He's sort of in his own category much of the time although he he definitely you know uses gospel techniques on stage but uh, yeah i mean that the whole live at the apollo story is so funny because sid once again would not go for it he thought it was too expensive james takes the money that he'd earmarked for a tour at some point in the future and hires his own recording um people to go to the Apollo and record a couple of nights. And then he goes to, he gets his own engineer to edit it down, sweeten the crowd sounds, which I never knew had happened. Um, that he'd stolen some audience stuff from a white sock hop that he recorded <laughs> for somebody else. Although I'm quite sure that wasn't uh, where the notorious, James, you asshole! Uh, woman in the audience came from and uh, so they, they put this thing out and they didn't have individual tracks on it you played one side and you played the other side because that was what was there and this is a pattern we'll see throughout the 60s when you write volume two but they had a time limit of sorts on singles on AM radio but if you had a product that had so much demand you could break through that, then you could really gobble up airtime. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure it was only uh, broadcast late at night initially because who wants to give up 40 minutes Yeah, um, when you could be playing, you know... Lots of ads. And and singles that people are uh, encouraging you to play. But this album comes out and just becomes a monster, you know, establishing James Brown as... The Godfather of Soul. And among white college kids, the ultimate party record. Uh, believe it or not, I, I still don't get that, but uh, it happened. Once again, when I got to college, that was another record everybody had. Yeah, and, and it's an Can you believe how wild record. this is? You know, because it is. Yeah, it's an insanely Nobody had heard that kind of um, reaction from an audience or that interaction between a performer and an audience unless they'd been there. And who went to Harlem to hear crazy James Brown screaming into a microphone, you know? Yeah, but it, it builds with a wide audience and you get increasing crossover with wide audience of light musicians throughout this period. Thanks for listening. 
Be sure and come back next week for the final episode of our first season, when we'll turn to what was happening in England in 1963, as well as the biggest Latino rocker since Richie Valens. Be sure and check out our website, letitrollpodcast.com, to access the YouTube playlist and hear the music we're talking about. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. Thank you.